This is Raw Cut. This is Life Bursts. I'm Matt. And I'm Sarah. Today, a story of someone with a massive heart for the community. Yes, welcome to Life Burst today with Matt and Sarah. And today we have Thomas, or as I know him as Father Thomas. So listeners and people watching, if I say Father Thomas, I'm still talking about Thomas. Thank you for coming in on today's show. Thank you, Sarah and Matt. Yeah, welcome. Uh, take us right back to the, the beginning of your life, Thomas. Mm. Uh, didn't grow up in Australia. Tell us where life started out for you. Yeah, my life started in the southern part of India. Mm. Uh, a state called Kerala, a land of, you know, spices. Kerala was known as Malabar uh, for centuries. So I grew up um, with mom and dad and I, five brothers. So I'm the eldest of the six boys. And uh, yeah, so I come from a village area, or we call it country town, a country area mm. in uh, Australia. So a small village um we had rubber trees and um coconut mangoes uh tapioca and all these different plantations so that's where i grew up and so when i finished my year 10 i joined the seminary uh, to become a priest what what caused you to want to do that uh, from from working with the family to seminary um my uh, uncle is a priest so he was my parish priest when I was um, seven or eight years old. So his work and ministry um, really inspired me. And many of his friends became parish priests in my parish later. So, you know, I had this very good relationship with many other priests. And so that led me to join the seminary and to, I wanted to help people. So when I was growing up, you know, we come from a, uh, not a, wealthy village at all Mm -hmm. and the priest has got a big role and they were supporting a lot of people in the community so that really inspired me to join the seminary and and then 10 years of my studies and then became priest 10 years of yeah yeah okay how did you find the study part yourself was it different to what you pictured from what your uncle had done um i think one of the good things about the seminary life it, it's a sheltered life because you get, you know, you have to study, but you are looked after by the, you know, the church people uh, in the seminary. So life is a very comfortable apart from you study. Um, you know, you have to do your bachelor's in philosophy and theology. And then also you get time to go out during the vac- vacation to visit parishes and help other priests and so on. So I enjoyed all that. And during my philosophy life, I used to visit some um, nursing homes, um, some, we call it railway colonies where poor people lived, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, financially poor people lived. So which all inspired me, you know, how when you visit people and how even going to the nursing home, you know, visiting people and talking to them as a young boy. So... That helped me in so many ways to see the world in a different eyes. Mm. Right. Talk us through what was a typical day like when you were studying and living there? Ah, in the seminary life, yeah. you had to wake up around 5.30 in the morning and then we have got morning prayer and then we got uh, Mass or Holy Communion 
and then you got study time and then class begins at nine o'clock and then you have lunch break then again you've got classes so monday to friday every day it is the same and then saturday and sunday uh, you got time for study so it's a very rigorous or scheduled life mm-hmm. or during the seminary life mm. so which helps you to organize your life so that you know when you become a priest you know you you get an order for your life mm. right what is prayers i thought prayers and mass were like the same thing ah uh, when you are in the seminary we got morning prayers and um, that's different from mass um, so morning prayer and then evening prayer so in the seminary there is so many different types of prayers that you have to go through okay meditation mm yeah so you were looked after for those 10 years while you were studied and and then at the end of that uh, was it were you just thrown out into the world or was there a place assigned for you or how does it work yeah so i was ordained in 1997 and uh, then i was appointed as an assistant priest under a senior priest for 6 months that was a really wonderful experience and he was a really amazing priest so we get along very well and uh, and then i was uh, asked to go to north india for three years to do ministry uh, in the state of gujarat uh, in the diocese of rajkot so i was an uh, assistant priest in one of the parishes there so it was a very multi linguistic parish people from all over india would go and live there in gandhidam because it's a huge port city one of the biggest port in india called kandala so because of that the people from all states um go and live there and work so i worked there two years and then i went to a uh, a place called nalia which is um again uh, near to pakistan border uh we started the school there and a high hospital you know do a lot of cataract operation and um and during that time you know the earthquake struck um in in india in gujarat 2001 january 26 uh, around 8:45 am and uh, you know i lost many of my friends in the earthquake mm. um it was a really difficult moment in my life you know when you as a young person when you lose your friends and people you have worked with the place you visited mm. as a priest and then i still remember um in one family in one family um the father and the youngest child died the mother and the oldest boy was in the school and she was a teacher so they escaped because they were in another place but their apartment came down and the father and the youngest boy died i still recall when i went to the apartment and Shirley and the oldest boy called Sayud was standing there and um, she came rushing to me and she was sitting with other people and can you just show me my tennis and up here and it was really you know struck me you feel completely helpless because mm. i i know they are somewhere in the in the rubble in that apartment you know it took um 3 days i think to you know to retrieve the body and so on so as a priest first time i really felt 
um, I can't do much apart from just be there with them at that time. So, yeah, I still um, talk to Shirley, and now she lives in Kuwait, married again, and she got, um, you know, she still recalls some of those one memories mm. of mm. tragedy, um, you know, when she lost uh, in her early 20s or something, lost her husband and their youngest child. Mm. How old were you when this happened? I was only 29 years old. Okay, still young. Yeah. So all through my life, I always think about that because, uh, you know, you went to the, the town of Gandhidam and you saw so many big buildings all collapsed and um, people lost their life. Mm-hmm. And one of the worst um, feelings that I went through during that time, we had a carpenter in our parish. In, and um, so he used to make the uh, the coffin, you know, for the church people mm-hmm. because it's mainly a Hindu and Muslim area, so they were very different ways to burn the bodies and so on. So we had three in the church, but we got his body for the fourth one. So when he was buried, we, we didn't have anything, you know, we had to just bury him. So he's somebody who was pre- making, you know, coffin for others when he died he mm. didn't get one mm. so you know some of those are things that you will that you will that will affect your life um and uh, you know sometimes you look at the money and the wealth and you know it can all disappear yes what what um, you give for others is the love and care and compassion mm. Mm. a significant and, and life-shaping moment for mm. you yeah well, when we come back, we'll hear more of Thomas's story. This is Life Burst with Sarah and Matt. If you like what you're hearing, please write a review of this podcast on your podcasting app, or you can share this on social media. This is Life Burst with Sarah and Matt. Today we're chatting with Father Thomas, who is a priest. Uh, no, at this time in your story, you're a priest in the Catholic church and you're sharing with us about the big earthquake that happened in india um i have a question that's sticking in my mind though because when you were talking about all the training that you had and everything that you did was there a point when you had to make your decision in year 10 to leave and go where you thought like you know you couldn't get married or like do any of that stuff like how how did that come about oh so many joined the seminary and um you know, out of 30, four or five become priests. So we all get options whether you, we can leave any time. Yeah. Most of them leave after three years. So Oh, okay. And so I decided to continue on because of my, I wanted to reach out the best way I can to help people. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And so as you shared, you certainly had a now a chance to do that in a huge need with an earthquake and a, and a village destroyed, uh, well, a city. Oh, city. Mm, uh, mm. How, how were you then involved as you regrouped yourself and uh, wanted to respond and help? How were you able to help? So first of four or five days, you know, complete nothingness. Mm. You don't know what to do. And then, um, you know, we had a hospital there. The nuns were running a hospital. So... Uh, we had to start the hospital outside the hospital building because of the tremors, and then we started think we started um, going and collecting food from um, um, 
a gurudwara which is the the sikh religion they were cooking food and distributing so we started collecting the food from their pantry and then going and distributing then after some time we thought we may start doing that so we started cooking food and going and helping feeding the people in the streets and so on and uh, and then suddenly we started a relief center uh, from nowhere it was not planned but the young people in the parish and others started helping so within few weeks you know we started one of the biggest relief center in gandhidam uh, and then we started going out to the villages and helping and giving food uh, groceries um and all sorts of things we did and so one thing that we also re- realized the generosity of people people from the other big cities started you know sending things on the trucks and you know every day we were getting food and other things and so all the church people and others they came to us and they were either cooking or they going out to the villages and helping so you see the other side of the people they wanted to help mm. so we started first in gandhidam then i went to the village where i was working in nalia so we started another relief center with a jesuit priest and we visited so many remote villages i visited villages before that when we were doing the eye cam you know uh, going in the nurses will go and check the eyes and right. but after the earthquake i went to so many villages and met so many people and we were able to help you know hundreds and thousands of people and then the diocese of rajkot built thousands of houses in different villages after the earthquake you know it took some years but they uh, built so many um houses but my contract was finished so i left uh, gujarat and went back to kerala and became a parish priest um during that time So, what happened to all the people that lost houses and everything after the earthquake where did they go um a lot of people were living in the same villages you know they may make a small shelter and live there and then it took years before they build their houses mm. i mean so that's they, a story of everywhere people, did they just take rubble and build houses did they yeah first yeah. they may just make a tent or something like that so mm. then you also realize how the people in the villages live very simple life they don't have big houses you know small houses or huts they can just move on with their life mm. um in that way but the people in the cities they lost everything you know the apartments and um you know the people lost their life that is the worst part mm. Mm. so you now moved uh closer to your family again but in in a parish setting yeah. how how was that different to what you've done before mm. apart from the emergency Uh, how did you find settling into that role yeah it was a very traditional parish of 97 years in that particular parish so around 3000 people and around 480 families so uh, kerala is a very traditional you know state uh, we got big christian population and so you, you, when you travel you can see so many parishes of the catholic church or um, other churches so i was in a very catholic dominated area where i worked and so we um every day you got mass and then different things uh, in the parish weddings and uh, funerals uh, baptisms 
and on Sunday we got you know we got around more than 450 children at that time in the for the catechism so it is a huge parish so you do all those things apart from that I just um, uh, started a, a a small project helping students in uh, the, from the poor families so education fund you know a lot of people supported so that helped so many poor families they could send the children to uh, nursing or other education so uh, you do your main duty as a priest in a parish and then what you do extra that is what is important in my life mm, okay and uh, do you think that came from the experience you had uh, in the north? Uh, I th- uh, maybe my upbringing with my family mm. in, in so many ways, okay. my mom and my dad, and they showed the example, and also many mm. other priests, they showed the example of helping other people. And and so I took a lot from learning things from North India and, and the earthquake, you know, that affect your life. So um, you wanted to do the best. For others, especially when people are going through tough time. So, and many other things happen just because um, people came and told me something. Uh, the education fund I started, for example, one evening, um, a father and a son came to see me very late, you know, around nine o'clock or something in the evening, and then gave me a hundred thousand Indian rupees which is a lot of money, um, and told me, you can do whatever you want, this money. And so that what I'm going to do with this money. And they said, don't tell this, announce in the church or anything, but you you just tell me what is your plan. So I started the education fund. So from that fund, we were able to give five students, you know, so this a college fee for a nursing student is around 20000 rupees at that time. So that's a lot of money in mm-hmm. India. Mm-hmm. So you, you you were able to help five children. So then other people started coming and helping and supporting. Wow. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, life wasn't quiet. No. <laughs> no. It, was very, it was a very busy parish there. And, and while I was there in 2003, we celebrated, celebrated the centenary of the parish. Mm. So we did a lot of things during that time. Hmm. So, yeah, did your, your time there came to an end at a certain point? Yeah, so Bishop asked me whether I'd like to go and work in Australia. Okay. Um, he asked me in 2002, and I said, I will go only after the centenary celebration and so on. So then I left in 2004 to Australia, came to Melbourne and worked in the Diocese of Sale, in the Catholic Diocese. And so first uh, in Cranbourne, then six, three years in Narewaran Parish, with a priest called Father John Allen, and I'm still in this in this country because of him. Mm. He was a great example uh, and wonderful priest. Um, Father John died almost eight years ago of pancreatic cancer, but his his influence um, in so many ways allowed me to stay. I was planning to go back after three years, um, but it was Father John insisted you should stay more, and then after three years I became parish priest in Gippsland, Foster Yarram. So I spent another two more years there. 
Okay. Well, when we come back, Thomas, I'd love to hear uh, what your experience of Australia was for the mm. first time. Mm. So uh, we'll hold that thought. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this is Life Burst, chatting to Thomas with Matt and Sarah. Hey, did you know this show is available in video too? You can find it at rawcut.com.au. You're with us here on Life Burst as we are chatting to Thomas or Father Thomas, uh, who after you know, 30 odd years in India, have found yourself moving to Australia. And uh, how did you find that? Was there a, a huge cultural gap? Were you prepared for this? Uh, yeah, the first time I had a very bad cultural shock. Mm. <laughs> I, I really, it was really affected because, you know, you've been a parish priest in India and did a lot of things. Then suddenly you had to become an assistant priest. That's one thing. And then also a lot of things are different, how the church functions and so on. So after six months, I thought, no, I can't stay in this country. I really wanted to go back. Actually, I want to go back after one year. And then I was moved to from Cranburn Parish to Narewaran Parish. Well, that is when I was with the Father John. So he really helped me to understand Australian values and culture. And, you know, we used to go to the footy, mm-hmm. um, cricket, and all sorts of things. And, uh, and then I started slowly learning, you know, how much he loved his people um, in, in, in Australia. And, and then I realized... You get that initial cultural shock, then you just adapt to this new culture. Mm. So that was only at the beginning. Then after that, I, you know, enjoyed living in this country and understanding this culture and so on. Yeah. Did you like Vegemite? No. Thank (laughs) you. I like footy. You like footy, okay. One of the best things in Victoria, if you get to know footy, then you can start a conversation if you go to any house. Yeah. So yeah, Vegemite doesn't have that same. <laughs> no, no. So, yeah, no. That's here. You have to look there. Yeah. What What other foods did you not like when you first came to Australia, or foods that you did like? What was the food like? Um, I never used to eat meat at all. I'm a mainly vegetarian of meat fish. So when I came to Australia, wherever you go for any function, is mostly the meat. You know the meat. So it took some time for me to adapt, and and then I had to go and when people invite me for dinner or something, I had to tell them, please don't cook meat for me. So, yeah, so then the people came to know about it. So the food is another thing. It's a big shock. You know, in India, we all use a lot of spices and so on. So when you came to Australia, you, it was, you know, you couldn't feel much taste. It was bland. <laughs> very very bland. bland, yes. But now I'm so used to all these. You know, being in here such a long time. Yeah. But still don't like Vegemite. Ah, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, Vegemite does have a, has flavour, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, but probably not what you were looking for. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you were with uh, Father John uh, in that second parish. Yeah. In, um, and uh, you, you adjusted to the culture. You grew, yes. grew to love yeah. your people. Mm. Uh, and then where did things go from there? Um so then I, w- I was appointed as parish priest in Foster and Yarram. Right. So that is the same time I was thinking about, you know, joining the Anglican Church. And I happened to meet a bishop in a Clare in South Australia when I visited one of my friend priests. And um, so he is the one who invited me to come to South Australia. And so, so in 2010, 
I came into South Australia. And um, yeah, and then I was appointed at um, York Peninsula uh, as a ministry district priest for, I was there more than five years. Yeah. I Um, want to know about how you made friends, like your English and things like that. Were you good at speaking English when you first came to Australia? um, So three years before I came to Australia, I was in Kerala, so I was hardly ever spoke English. But before that, when I was North India, two years, so I used to speak um, English because it's a multilinguistic parish, people from all over um, uh, all over India was there. So, you know, then I had, when I came to Australia, I had to start uh, learning. So it takes time, you know. Uh, you know, when people ask the question, soon after you, soon after I came to Australia, People will be asking questions. Ah, oh, Thomas, who do you work for? Hmm. I know what they're talking about. Yeah, you know. So a lot of um, Australian slang, you hmm. find it difficult. I had to say when I used to speak with a priest, and I could understand when I when when Australian priests used to talk to themselves, it was difficult for me at the beginning. Then I picked up, you know, especially when they were talking footy and so on, hmm. non-stop, you know. We used to catch up on Mondays. Um, and so the main conversation will be about the football. Yeah, because it was on the weekends. Yeah. yeah. But once I came to know about the footy culture, then it was easy for me to um, understand and start a conversation. So from the early part of my life in Australia, I picked up a team. So I stick with that team. Who and is it? Who was it? Yes, you better... Yeah, St. Kilda. Uh-huh. The, the story is when I... When I came to Australia the first day, they arranged a dinner uh, with some other priest. And I went to this house. Um, he was a deacon, Tony Aspinall. I, he opened the door and put a scarf around my neck <laughs> and told me, Welcome to Australia, Thomas. Now you have to become a saint. <laughs> I had no idea what he meant at that time. <laughs> and then when I, when I was staying with the bishop, Jeremiah, uh, he was a cat, Geelong supporter. And I showed him the scarf and then he laughed and said that he's, he's a St. Gilda supporter, Thomas. So he used to take me to MCG to watch, you know, to watch football. So I thought I'll have a reason to stick with one team. Uh-huh. Yeah, makes sense. Well, right. we'll forgive you, we South Australians, <laughs> yes, we will. knowing your story. Now, when you do move to South Australia, uh, how was that as a step out to a, a rural country area? Was that different to uh, Victoria or similar? Um, I wasn't, you know, foster Yarram. Mm. It was a... Mainly, mainly a dairy farming community, mm-hmm. um, foster and surrounding area. The Aram is not so much, but not in, not a crop crop country. But when I came to uh, York Peninsula, it is mainly wheat, barley, and canola and lentils. Um, so I need, I wanted to know about that culture, you know, the people. So I used to go and sit with some of my fa- church members when they were seeding or when they were reaping. So and we'll talk to them. And, uh, you know, also get to know about their life. So that was a big thing. I, I didn't realize when I, ju- I just wanted to know about. But the farmers will talk, oh, you know, the priest was with me for a couple of hours and talking about the farming, farming life. So if you are in a small community and if you just become part of their life, then they will accept you. Mm. Um, the people used to tell when I was uh, living in Millington, you know, if you are not born in Millington, they won't consider us your local. But 
when I left, I realized they treated me like a local. You know, how people, when I used to go to the pub and people start, why oh, you are leaving us? Why you don't like us? And so on. I said, it's nothing to do with, with, with that. I just wanted to move on with my ministry. So, so you just when you reach out, not just within the church and also within the wider community, you reach out and people will support you and become part of your life. And one of the things I started soon after I went there was a mission to seafarers, which is a, uh, there's a port near uh, Jaws, you know, mm. not so far from Edithburg. So I visited a ship uh, three months after I went to um, York Peninsula and and this particular um, captain told me, if you start a mission, which will help the seafarers. So, you know, there are 1.2 million seafarers around the world, you know, traveling around on a 40,000 cargo ship all around the world. Mm-hmm. So when they when they come to York Peninsula, they don't have anywhere to go. Mm. So that's when we started the mission at Edithburg, which helps so many people. Uh, you know, people from Philippines or India or Indonesia, Turkey. I met people from, you know, different parts of the world. And um, and we focused on the hospitality and really caring for the people. And so a year after, um, somebody contacted me and said, oh, you know, you like to nominate for Seafarers Welfare Award in the national level. So we just applied and we went to Sydney for, when we were shortlisted, we went to Sydney, Darling Harbour for this huge maritime and shipping industry award night. And um, <laughs> it was, you know, huge event with 400 or 500 delegates from all across Australia and around the world. And for the Seafarers Welfare Award, we won the national award. Oh, wow. It was Yay. a huge thing, uh, you know, yeah, at that time. Huge. And for the local people, it was a, you know, this is when we were receiving the award. Um, it was a huge thing for a local community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, how they were recognised. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. What a great yeah. initiative. Mm. Well, uh, Thomas, I'm sure there's more uh, mm-hmm. things you've got involved in. I know there is uh, in the wider community as well. <laughs> so as we come back, we will hear more of Thomas' story here on Life First. In Australia. Juvenile arthritis affects 1 in 1,000 children. It's a silent yet common condition. Kids Arthritis is here to help support these children and their families. To help them, go to kidsarthritis.org. This has been a Raw Cut Community Service Announcement. Welcome back to Life Bursts uh, with Sarah and Matt. Today we're chatting to Father Thomas, who before, when we were talking, you were a Catholic priest. Now you're an Anglican priest. What's the difference? There's not a lot of difference apart okay. from the church hierarchy and so on. Okay. As a priest, if you want to do something and to reach out to the community, it doesn't matter which hat you have. It's about what you do in the community matters, yeah. Mm. Okay. So you'd found yourself uh, on the York Peninsula. You started up this mission to seafarers uh, because you saw the need. Mm-hmm. Uh, what were some of the other things that you were able to be involved in uh, in the in the wider community as well? 
in 2015, we had the Samson flight bushfire in Adelaide Hills. So one of my church member, she was actually on holidays in Canada, sent me an email saying that their daughter's friend's house burned down in the uh, in the Adelaide Hills. So can you do? Can you help them? So I thought I better go and see the family. So with some church people, I traveled to Adelaide Hills, and uh, their, their house was in the Checkerfield Road, and it house was burned down. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, the guy, uh, Brad, had also very terminal cancer. So I felt really sad, you know, he had cancer and his house burned down. And uh, and so then I went to the Blaisade camp and I thought I wanted to go and help that family building pencils along with the Blaisade volunteers. So that's what I started doing. Um, on Sunday after the church service, I used to travel to Lenswood at the Blaisade camp and worked on Mondays and Tuesdays most of the week whenever I could. And that led um, a lot of people from our church went to work at the Blaisade camp. And we used to travel um, and also do do the, uh, you know, the cooking. Um, right. You know, the church people hired the bus, or at that time we had the mission to seafarers bus, and we used to travel there and cook the meal. And I still remember one one day when we did the cooking, the young fellow, a Blaisett volunteer, he was his 21st birthday. So many other volunteers came. So we happened to be there doing cooking for 60 or 70 people. So we traveled almost three hours, you know, from Midlandton to come all the way to Lanswood. And when we were leaving, you know, all these people, Blaisett volunteers, stood up and they clapped the hand for us for coming all the way from, you know, York Peninsula and cooking for them. And uh, so I met so many amazing people at the Blaisett camp uh, who traveled from, uh, you know, different parts of Australia, came and stayed in the caravan and reach out to the people who lost their houses, We've people, their fo- properties. Got a photo of one of the teams right? of uh, one of the fires over the years? Yeah, this is actually, uh, you know, the recent bushfire recent. here, Carly Creek bushfire. That was the first day. Uh, I didn't go on that particular day, but uh, I went and worked at the Bladeside Camp too. But I was there with the other Bladeside volunteers who were getting ready to go to the mm. uh, to the place. For people who don't know what Blaze Aid is, Thomas, what is Blaze Aid? Uh, Blaze Aid was started in 2009 after the, um, you know, Victorian bushfire, you know, the mm. Black Saturday bushfire. Mm. So uh, Kevin and Rhonda Butler, they lost their property and they put a small ad on the local newspaper asking some volunteers to, uh, you know, build their fences. And so around Kevin told me around 30 people turned up. And uh, so they thought they would go and help their neighbours. And so that's how, how it started in 2009. And now, you know, after every bushfire or natural disaster floods, um, Blaise said volunteers go and help people build fences and so on. It's actually one of the best organisations I ever worked in my life because... People who come to the Blazer camp, they just want to help people. Mm. They're all volunteers. There is nobody paid in the Blazer. Their only expense is actually, you know, they have to, you know, buy um, instruments, you know, to build fences, you know, those kind of things. Other than that, you know, everything that uh, the Blazer get, you know, is used to help 
building fences. Mm. So the Samson fire that you mentioned wasn't the first time you've had involvement with Blaze Aid. No, that's you... the first time. Uh, so yeah, so it was the first time, but but it's not the only time. No, right? and after that, after the Pinery fire, mm. I did the uh, you know used to go and uh, building fences, and then uh, after the Carlick Creek fire, I contacted immediately uh, Kevin and Rhonda, you know, because I had this connection with the the founder because I met them couple of times before that and I was on the Macca Sunday morning (laughs) when he came to uh, Rosworthy camp for the final place get together Mm. so I you know so I tried to promote Blazehead wherever I went you know as a Blazehead volunteer and telling stories so soon after the Carlick Creek bushfire contacted Dan Cregan, Rebecca Shaki and uh, and also Wendy, who was the Blazehead coordinator in South Australia at that time. So we started the Blazehead camp not long after, uh, you know, the fire went through uh, at Lobatel Football Oval. And, um, yeah, so I still keep in touch with some of the Blazehead volunteers. And one of my uh, friends from Western Australia, I met him at Samson Flat Fire. You know, he came to came with me to Nepal and India and so on. Um, he died last year of pancreatic cancer too. Um, so Terry was one of my best friends, you know, because of that connection with the Blaze. Mm, mm. So I met so many amazing people. Through even now, sometime when I go through on park, you know, somebody will come and oh, you um, say hello to me because of my connection with the Blaze. I remember you uh, promoting at a at a local uh, Christmas carols event, promoting Blaze Aid. Uh, the collection went to Blaze Aid, and it was not long after that that wow. fire swept through. The, yeah. the, just very close to that region yeah, uh, in the Adelaide true. Hills. Yeah, so a really important um, mm-hmm. part of the Australian response. Uh, mm. Yes, yeah. that's right. And fences are so important as well. Mm. Uh, to farming communities keep your stock in and keep everything else in after the fire's gone through first when i went to work at the place it came i i thought i'm only building fences but you are actually doing much more than that mm. because when you are working in with a family often you have morning tea or lunch with the families who lost the houses or lost the property so uh, there was a beautiful article written in in victoria one of the journal uh, the heading was um, building fences and mending lives. Mm. And that is exactly what I felt because you meet with the people and listen to the stories. And so people who lost the houses or property, they realize there is somebody who really cared for them. Yeah. And they wanted to s- spend time with them and build their fences and listen to their stories. So it's not just building fences. It's far more than that when you reach out to the families and when i used to go for the fencing you know with other group people they will go first and visit the family and they will say ah now today we and no swearing because we got a minister with us (laughs) 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 and then if you know when we were working and if i swear or sometime you know when you were Bob Y came and hit you and so on. And then they will go to the Blazehead camp and said, oh, we had Thomas swearing today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, good. You're a real person too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
How did you find, uh, so obviously you've been involved in the more recent Cuddly Creek fire response with Blaze Aid and in other ways. Uh, was that response uh, affected by COVID in a, in a major way? Because that came soon after. Yeah, so they had to close the camp mm. early um, and, and then they came back again and then they built defences. But um, uh, during after, just soon after the fire, I also met some people who lost their houses and I still keep in touch with some families and try to support the best way I can. Mm. And, um, you know, our church hall was more like a mini supermarket. Matthew came after, mm. came and so, and I still remember a, a family who lost the house, came a mother and two kids and with the grandparents. And uh, we had all the toys in the church. And then I took the children to the, uh, to the church. And this, children um, jumped up and down and said, oh, we, want, we found the toy. And um, and the mother told me they found exactly the same toy they lost in the fire mm. in their house. So those kind of small stories, you know, mm. and then the child came and asked me, oh, can I have this toy? This is my toy I lost. And I said, yeah, of course you can have the toy. So you don't know sometimes what, what really happens, yeah. um, you know, some people's life. And I happened when I went for a walk one day at Laratunga, and this family happened to see me. They called me, and the children came and talked to me and said, oh, we still got your toys. Those kind of wonderful yeah, stories. Yeah. That's so lovely. So many mm. wonderful stories we're hearing today here on Life Bus with Matt and Sarah chatting to Thomas. We'll be back straight after this. If you think more people should listen to this, share this podcast on social media. Welcome back to Life Best with Matt and Sarah. We're chatting with Thomas today. Uh, Thomas, you've brought some pictures in for those who are watching this on community television or uh, YouTube or Facebook. You have brought some pictures to show us about an orphanage. Share yeah. us. So in that. 2015, uh, you remember there was a massive earthquake, April 25th, uh, in Nepal, in Kathmandu and other parts. So because I experienced earthquake in 2001, whenever there is a natural disaster, it affects you, especially earthquake. Mm, and so, yeah. and um, I happened to see a small ad in the Yorktown post office. They are doing some fundraising for an orphanage, helpless colony orphanage in Kathmandu. So I went for the fundraising event and, um, and then I met a journalist who I knew very well. And uh, so I, went back to her after the fundraising and I asked her, what's your plan? And they said, oh, you know, she said, we got some money from the fundraising. We sent it to the uh, the orphanage. That's it. So I said, can we work together? And, and so in October 2015, I went to Nepal and saw this orphanage. One thing I told Jenny and also other committee members when I formed the committee, I wanted to go and see the orphanage and how genuine they are. And so I traveled my friends from Victoria, a couple who went, spent time in Nepal, and then we found they are very genuine. So, and then um, when I was planning to go to Nepal, um, one of the church lady from Millington, John Coral, she said, you know, if you find a you know, block of land, I will support you, uh, and also the committee. So, 
that is how it all came about. We went to Nepal and they found a block of land and then uh, we went, I went back again uh, in 2016 uh, May with John and a couple of others, uh, K. Barlow and Regina Bishop, and she laid, John laid the foundation stone in 2016. And so that's the same time I came to uh, Mount Barker. I came to Mount Barker in 2016, June. From the York Peninsula. Yeah, yeah, so from York Peninsula, I went to Nepal and start, you know, laid the foundation stone with John and I blessed the um, foundation stone. And then I came to Mount Barker. So, you know, Nanu started the orphanage, Nanu Rai started the orphanage, and she was looking after around 22 children at that time. So she never had any any land or orphanage, so she was renting a place, and when she didn't have money, there, she has to move out. And so now they got a secure house, and they got uh, a place to live. And so between 2016 and 17, we finished the project, and in 2017, we, uh, I took a big group of 28 people from here, and York, some from York Peninsula, most of them from, from Mount Parker, and some of my Blaisade friends. So we all went and officially opened the orphanage. Mm. Now talk us through a few photos that you've, uh, yes, you've got here for those do. who are um, online and for those who are listening as well, uh, so that you've got a group. Uh, yeah, so this is a big group we went um for the official opening, and you can see the children and the uh, all sitting, mm. and you can see John in the middle with the uh, red dress. She's the one who sponsored, uh, you know, bought the land and paid for the building. And so that, it's a significant building that you're able to uh, to provide. Mm. Yeah, you will see in the other slides how big it is. You know, there is a ground floor for the boys, and there, there is also kitchen and dining hall, and the first floor for the uh, for the girls. And for Nanu and the top floor, there are two rooms. When people go from here or somewhere, they can stay uh, as a guest rooms. So it's a very big, yeah, it's a very big um, uh, building. Multiple story, and that's on a hill, uh, on a sloping. Yeah, it is a part of. It is actually on a flat land, but the mountains are not so far. Uh, I see. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, it's much? only uh, around thirty minutes from the Kathmandu airport. Okay. It's not so far. It's actually one of the nicest places in Kathmandu. Okay. Very wealthy area. And and so when we were looking for the land, I thought better to buy really nice area. Uh, and plus they they got a lot of fresh water because mm. of the nearby mountains. So Yeah. And how many does it house uh, the orphanage? Ah, uh, twenty two. Mm. But at this moment after the COVID, you know, some of the children went to the relatives or family. And not all of them are orphans. Some of them are from very poor families. So, so they haven't gone to the school since last March or something like that. So it is a you know sad story how that has affected the whole world. Mm. Yeah. So you know it is just it just happened, but John Coral gave us the money to buy the land and also to build the orphanage. But we did a lot of fundraising in York Peninsula and also in Mount Barker, and you came to a couple of them in yes. Chenga. So, you know, people wanted to support, um, you know, for their food and for their uh, education. Mm -hmm. So we can just build a house, but we also got ongoing expenses. Uh, children all go to the private school, so that's expensive, and then you have to feed them. 
so that is why we did a lot of fundraising mm-hmm. for the orphanage. And you, you saw around 240 people came to Echenga. It shows how when people listen to your story, they will support. And that is something I really learned in this country and also in India, of course. If you really tell a great story to the people and you are doing it for others and Australian people support you. Mm. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That is very much so. Well, I think what I said in the very beginning of this interview is quite true. Mm. Is you are here to help other people and it's lovely to have you on the show to share your story with the rest of the world here at Life Burst. And in the final one minute of our show today, Father Thomas, there's one piece of advice you could leave with those today. What would that be? Oh, it's a single word called respect. Something my parents taught me and I have learned in my life, especially when we are going through a very tough time now with the COVID restrictions and, you know, different people have got different opinions about everything. And sometimes we lack the respect to accept people. You know, we become very intolerable these days, regardless of a lot of things. So we must respect, and I, I said this in yesterday in the church, you know, Jesus said, love your God with all your heart, with all your, you know, soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. And I said, that means we have to respect. Um, people can have different opinions about anything, but there are times people feel that lack of respect and show the compassion. So if we can respect others, then we may be able to accept our other people's differences. Mm. Yeah. Right. Great advice. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that and for your whole story. You can see the way that you've been shaped through all those years and uh, continue to uh, to be there for others in the community um, out of respect and out of out of love for them. So thank you. Mm. Thank you, Madam Sarah. Today. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. This has been Life Burst. You can catch up with us wherever you get your podcasts from, also on Facebook and YouTube, and, of course, community, TV and radio. Thanks so much for joining us today. Stay tuned next time. Life Bursts is hosted by Matthew Karat and Sarah Freeman with production by Reese Jarrett and Kay Hoshra Ozadigan. For more episodes of Life Bursts, go to rawcut.com.au. This is a Raw Cut production.